Dr. Ziley is an ordained Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor. He's a co-president of the State Board of Education in Michigan. He's concluding an eight-year term. He's campaigning for one more eight-year term. Is that all you're allowed then, is two eight-year terms? You can do as many as you want. When uh, you're like Methuselah, then you can stop. Right? Well, are you talking about Kathy Strauss, who served uh, four terms? No, I okay. don't Okay, she just retired two years ago. So. But anyway, yeah. uh, Dr. Ziley's got uh, as many degrees as, as long as my arm is. Very intelligent man. He's going to talk to us about what's the best policies for education in the state of Michigan. So let's give the Reverend Dr. Richard Ziley a warm hand. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Very good. Well, thank you so much. It has been such a joy and a privilege to be with you today. I want to thank especially Barb and Dwayne for making me feel so welcome here and Alpina, where they took me to lunch and bought all my drinks, and um, and I, I think you got me one tonight too. So, uh, so thank you so much, Mr. Zarowski, my uh, sixth grade teacher, told me that use lots of examples in your paper because great minds run the same rut. And if that's the case, I want to compliment uh, General Bergman here on your shirt. There you go. There you go. And um, it's Lutheran blue. There you go. There you go. Uh, speaking of Lutherans, I, I ran into Representative Sue Aller here, who reminded me that uh, she was ahead of me at Lutheran High West in Detroit. And if that's the case, how come you look so much younger than I do? <laughs> now, it did, it did call... You remember Reverend Williams, don't you? He was our vice principal and, uh, and famous for uh, towing the line. You know, when I went from... You know, you went from Lutheran schools, so you were used to it, but I went from Highland Park Public Schools to Lutheran High West, and, and there we were more afraid of the teachers than we were of the bullies. And the teachers had a better program for me, so I, I turned out much better thanks to that. But I did, in my rebellious mood, I did write this poem about Pastor William. As I was gabbing, loudly blabbing, about some marathon test I had in store, as I was talking, in came walking Pastor Williams through the study hall door. I was just saying that Williams was graying and detention hall was such a bore. Now that you mention, here's a double detention, he said. See you at 334. <laughs> now, I was going to put Bob's name in there, but I just met him, and you never get a second chance to make a good first impression, so I thought it would be prudent to, to just to keep it in history there like that. I'll tell you, I've really enjoyed campaigning here. You, you go to gatherings like this, and you, you eat, and you talk, and that's right up my alley. And run into wonderful people like candidates who are campaigning and, and people who are laboring on our behalf, and uh, that's very enjoyable as well. So let me talk a little bit about the State Board of Education. Some of you may be aware that Michigan's Constitution makes for a state board of education made up of eight members, and each member serves an eight-year term. So every two years, we elect two members to the state board of education. Now, up until President Trump, we'd gone through a period of a quarter century where Democrats had a majority on the state board of education. Thanks to Mr. Trump, Two incumbent Democrats were replaced by Republicans on our State Board of Education. 
So for the first time in a quarter century, we have an even split. And, uh, I, and so that January following, my, my colleagues graciously elected me as co-president of the board. I had bipartisan support. I also had bipartisan opposition, but that's another story. And, you know, some people in the news were saying, oh, it's going to be terrible, the board will be deadlocked, they'll never get anything done. And uh, it's been just the opposite. We stopped them from doing stupid stuff, and they returned the favor. Okay. And I'll tell you, with, with Tom McMillan on the board, it's so refreshing to have someone to the right of me on the board. So that's, uh, that's a great, great experience as well. One of our uh, deputy superintendents retired a meeting or two ago, and, and her farewell speech was that she had never seen the board work more productively and, and cooperatively than uh, these two years that we've had with the split board. Now, the bad news is that two incumbent Republicans' terms, mine and Eileen Weiser, our terms are up this year. Eileen, who's married to the Ron Weiser, the chairman of the state party, has announced that she will not run for another term. So we, as a party, have to come up with another nominee. And the best we can do this fall is to retain our four-to-four split on the board. But I want to emphasize how important that is. Now, six years ago, you know what the Democratic majority, what issue they thought was so important. It was crushing charter schools. They neglected the, the 90% of Michigan kids who go to traditional public schools, but they, they wanted to focus on those charter schools. And they did so from a position of ignorance. For example, a charter school gets a charter for three to five years, seven years at the most. Well, if you're going to set up a building and borrow money, you've got to pay it all off within that three or five or seven years, which means you're going to pay higher interest rates. You're going to pay more for your building costs. Well, one of my colleagues on the board, a Democrat, uh, saw that they were paying more for building costs and said, there must be corruption going on. We've got to get to the bottom of this and yada, yada. And stories went in the newspaper talking about charters charging more for building costs and somebody must be making money and that's a dirty thing, okay? So it's, it's important that we be able to stop this kind of ignorance from getting public credence. So that's what's at stake in the election coming up. I humbly ask your support as I seek another, another term on our state's Board of Education. Thank you. I wanted to congratulate you who have come because you are the strength of America's democracy. And here's what I mean. Everyone gets a vote. They don't make you vote. Some socialist and communist countries, they make you vote. So they got 100% participation. A lot of good it does them. Everyone gets a vote. Some people, however, don't pay attention until the last month, the last week. They've only got a small box in their heads for politics. And it's those people who wait till the last minute who can't bother to be informed that are the prey of negative campaigning and of misrepresentation and fake news. And it works because if you can get something nasty in that little box that someone has for politics, you know, oh, the Republicans are all greedy for money, or... 
the president once had a tryst somewhere. Then you can sway that voter. And they don't know anything else except that one thing that they've put in the box. Now, fortunately, you who care enough to get informed have the preponderance of influence in our democracy. Because you are the ones that turn out to hear boring speeches from people like me, exciting speeches from people like the congressman, and everything in between. So you are informed. Now, some of you have family and friends who, who, you know, wouldn't come to a meeting like this. They'd rather stay home with the cow, all right? No offense. Um, But let's face it, when it comes time to vote, what do they say? Ten months out of the year, they're calling you a nerd and a political fanatic and so on and so forth. But then the election is coming up and they ask you, who do you think I should vote for? So you have the preponderance of influence in the process. Because people know that you care enough to be informed. And so they look to you for leadership, for guidance, for direction. Now, if you try to tell them what to do, they'll vote the opposite way. Uh, But any of us who've raised teenagers know those skills. So you have to, you know, just just let them come to you and and you influence them in, in the in the right direction. And furthermore, it's at events like this where you confirm or deny the validity of the ideas that policymakers or potential policymakers throw out. And your applause or your silence influences people whether to carry on or not. So in this way, you narrow the field down to the two or three candidates, and ultimately our party narrows it down to one. That's the purpose of parties in our process. They are broker parties. They help us narrow the field down to two people, two candidates with contrasting views, and then the people get to choose the one that they want to go with. And surprising as it may seem to many of my neighbors back in the Detroit area, Americans chose Mr. Trump. And as I look at the gutsy moves that he has made, especially in my area of education, the appointment of Betsy DeVos, that was a gutsy move. No Romney candidate would have made that appointment, but he did. And again, she's been the subject of all kinds of misinformation. People say, oh, she wants to close down the public schools and bring in all private education. Well, if you look at the 10 years in which her ideas have been Applied in Michigan, you see that the percentage of students served by the public schools has risen. Her proposed ideas, charter schools especially, and choice for families, has made our public schools in Michigan more responsive to parent concerns, and so a greater majority of parents choose public schools rather than private schools. Now, as someone who's made his career in parochial schools, I have some feelings about that. But I distinguish my ministry and its concerns from what is in the public interest. And I think it's in the public interest that parents have choice and that schools in general become responsive to the families that they serve. Now, this brings me to the, to the, the main thing. Uh, as I've said, you know, you care enough to be informed, so now I'm going to inform you. There are two broad pictures 
or visions for educational policy in our state and in our nation. The one vision is the vision of central planning. Friedrich Hayek, the great Austrian economist, describes it in his classic, The Road to Serfdom. As he observed England and other countries embracing socialism following the Second World War, he pointed out that the vision of central planning is very seductive. There's the conceit that the central planners can coordinate everything and everybody, that they can anticipate all the needs. Stalin's five-year plans became the, the goal uh, to be imitated, the process to be imitated by the planners. And that has been very seductive in American education. We hear the call today that we need to get all of our schools on the same page, that we have to have the same standards, the same tests, the same approaches, etc., etc. When we talk about central planning, one symptom is the Common Core Curriculum. Now, I've gotten in hot water with some people on the far right in our party because I, I frankly don't see the curriculum itself as a particular problem. The Common Core Curriculum is a set of goals for English and for math. And all curricula are, have about 85 to 95% in common. I mean, if you're going to learn English, you've got to learn verbs and nouns and, and punctuation and anything that purports to teach English is going to cover those. And the Common Core covers that better or worse than other curricula that are out there. That's not the problem. The problem is the philosophy of conformity, compliance. I've seen this countless times. People say, we've got a new curriculum, Common Core curriculum, now we need new methods to teach it. And that's BS. The traditional methods work better than anything else. Nevertheless, you've got lots of professionals out there who will tell you, oh, you can't use the old methods in teaching the Common Core curriculum. You've got to use, I don't know, whatever methods are being sold. And frankly, a lot of it is. A lot of the messaging that we get is from vendors who stand to gain from selling you new curricular products. I was with the National Association of State Boards of Education, and we had a representative from the Apple company. They show us the film, how all this, you know, data is exploding and no one can learn it all, and so we have to teach in a whole new way. And no more sage on the stage and so and so forth. And, and I pointed out to the guy, how can you say all this when the very method you're using to tell us is you are the sage on the stage? And he had to laugh and blush and admit that, yeah. Yeah, he was telling us all these ideas in the traditional way of a lecturer, a sage on the stage, what we call direct instruction. And let me tell you who benefits from traditional approaches. The lowest achieving students. You see, the highest achieving students have certain skills and understandings already. So if you have a student that's mastered most of the curriculum, you can let him or her go his or her own way. But a student that hasn't mastered those, you can't give him choices. He doesn't know enough to make good choices. 
But over the last 40 years, practically the whole time of my career in education, we have been moving towards the liberal progressive view, which has a very optimistic view of the individual humans. The, the, for a long time, the idea was we just want to give them room to grow. And so you let students make their own decisions. Well, is it surprising that some of them make bad decisions? They end up bullying one another. Okay? When you don't regulate their behavior closely in the traditional manner, yeah, they start to bully one another because they do what works. And so you need to have them form good habits and you need the close supervision until those habits are formed and then you can trust them uh, to make better decisions and so on. This is because there's a structure to learning. Now, do you remember learning how to play Monopoly? The first time you played Monopoly, you didn't know the rules. It was tedious. You had two or three friends that were assuring you that it was worthwhile. Come on, you can do it. And by the third time, you got the hang of the rules and the activity became self-reinforcing, self-rewarding. What had been tedious before becomes enjoyable. That's the structure of learning. And that's why kids who are at the top enjoy learning and why kids who are at the bottom don't. And that implies different methods are going to benefit kids at the top versus kids at the bottom. And so many compassionate liberals, and a good example is Governor Granholm, who, who said that every child must be prepared to go to college. You see, that's an elitist's notion of compassion because College, by definition, as Charles Murray has pointed out, is, is really fit for only about the 20-25% of the population. And we already have more than 20-25% of our people going to college, and we wonder why some of them have a college degree but can't find a job. So there, now there's renewed interest in, in vocational education, and that's good, and that's needed, and that's necessary. My concern is that when you move a kid out of high school into the workplace and he or she is surrounded by adults, you learn adult behaviors and attitudes. But when you move an instructor from the workplace into the classroom with 20 or 15 or even as few as 10 kids, okay, now the kids influence each other and that's much less effective. We are much less effective in teaching vocational skills in the classroom than we are in the workplace. Because here's the dirty secret that no educator wants to admit. That when you herd kids together in age-segregated groups, you retard their social and emotional development. That's why homeschooling is such a powerful device. Because your kid gets to spend his day with an adult all day instead of having to conform to the attitudes and vagaries of other kids his or her age. Now, why isn't homeschooling the solution? Well, I'll tell you. And again, I've got a little something to offend everybody. Because sooner or later, if you homeschool, sooner or later, you teach your kid everything you know, and you're either holding him back, or we conservatives have a frank acknowledgement of the darker sides of human nature your kid learns to push your buttons and you got to send him somewhere else before you kill him. <laughs> now, what does this mean for me on a, on a state policy level? I'll tell you. The alternate vision to this central planning 
is policy development that facilitates different visions of educational excellence, that facilitates individual initiative and private investment in education. The problem with central planning is that it ignores everything except for the planner's intent. But successful education does not come from the top down, it comes from the bottom up. It comes from the values, the social values in the home and in the face-to-face experiences of the young people who are there. So a young person from a home which values education, the parents read to the kids, and uh, maybe, uh, maybe it's part of a church or a scouting group where knowledge is prized and hard work is prized, that student will go to school and be much more open to what the school has to share than a child who is neglected at home and whose friends make fun of those who do homework, etc. So we have to encourage the family values, the community values that prize learning, hard work, and those characteristics that lead families out of poverty. Now, we know what those characteristics are. There are four of them. And I don't hear anyone in in schools talking about them, but I will tell you what they are. The first is honesty, truth-telling. The second, these are values that lead you out of of poverty within a generation. The first is honesty, truth-telling. The second is honesty with money, trustworthiness. The third is work ethic. And the fourth will shock you. The fourth value that correlates with people who get out of poverty within a generation, it's fidelity in marriage. If our schools could effectively teach these four values, we would be opening up the doors out of poverty for generations to come. As it is, Thomas Sowell, has demonstrated in the study of Haitians in uh, coming to New York. Haitians who are black and they have the extra handicap of uh, poverty and the extra handicap of not speaking English. They rose into the middle class within a generation while the American-born blacks remained entrapped in poverty. And Sol points out it's not that external prejudice was any less for these immigrants. If anything, it was greater but it was the individual values, the cultural values that people have that enable them to rise out of poverty and into the middle class. It is unfashionable to admit this, but schools are all about changing people's values. That's why there are laws requiring people to go to school. If they had the value already, you wouldn't have to have the law for compulsory attendance. And so we have to be upfront about the values that we teach in school and teach the values that enable people to leave poverty and rise into the middle class. Not because money is what we're living for, but it's just a symptom, a symptom of right living, truth-telling, trustworthiness, fidelity, and the work ethic. All right. So, now in my term on the board, most of the board, the the Democrats are firmly committed to that central planning model. 
Even many Republicans are firmly committed to the central planning model. The governor's 21st Century Education Commission is making a lot of noise. They're talking about how Michigan is falling behind other states, and most of their arguments are specious. If you're interested in my argument, I have a, an editorial from the Detroit News on whether we're really in an educational crisis or not. But what they're really calling for is more central planning, more policies, more money, and I'm convinced that that's not where the future is. American industry in general has been turning away from central planning to more customer-oriented service. I think that's the, the path that education must take as well. For the sake of our children, we need to pursue that path. In my service on the board, people have been very nice. I mean, the board votes together 80, 85% of the time. And my Democratic colleagues have been great friends and real nice to me. But I feel like I'm on a bus going to Cleveland. They let, they let me have a say in where we stop for lunch, but it really the bus went to Chicago. And if we can get a majority of Republicans on the State Board of Education, maybe we can turn the direction away from this central planning model based on the questionable assumptions of progressivism to policy development that enables public and private entities to work together to promote education and the values that underlie education. Thank you so much for letting me share some thoughts with you tonight. It's been a real privilege and an honor.